0: Gideon, after having been spoken to by the angel of the Lord, he builds an altar in verse 24, unto the Lord, and he calls it Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah, as we know, the self-existing one, and Shalom means peace. The Lord is my peace. This is an altar of memorial. There will be no burnt sacrifice on this altar, as we've seen elsewhere In the Old Testament, altars on occasions like this were built in memoriam to remember something about God. And here, it is the name Jehovah Shalom. Now, a little bit about the context. In chapter 1, before Joshua dies, he charges the children of Israel to be faithful to God and to keep His covenant. And then the angel appears in chapter 2, And conveys that Israel has not done so. They failed. When they went into the conquest of Canaan, they did not drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And they proved to be a snare to Israel. Their gods proved to be a snare. And they were engulfed in idolatry. And you begin to see a pattern emerge in the book of Judges. First, there's sin. And you'll see this pattern in chapter 6. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then there's Suppression, God delivers them into the hands of an oppressor, like here in chapter 6, the Midianites. Then there's supplication, they were so impoverished they cried unto the Lord. And then there's salvation or deliverance. God raises up a judge. Now don't think of a judge as a courtroom judge. This judge is like a military leader, a tribal leader that God raises up to do battle against the oppressors and put them down and bring peace and rest once again to Israel. Gideon is the fifth judge we find in the book of Judges, where the judges start off good, but later in the book of Judges they get very bad. And so it starts with Atniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, and now Gideon. And through Deborah's judging Israel with Barak, There was 40 years of rest in Israel. That speaks of a quietness and a peace from their oppression and oppressors. But then in chapter 6, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Midianites now, like grasshoppers and locusts, come in to the land. Every year for seven years, they would come in like an annual vacation or a Christian conference that you planned for. It was on their calendars. They knew when Israel sowed the land, so they moved from the west in the desert lands as they lived on camels to the east, and they brought their tents, their pets, their cattle, and they put them on camels, and they packed the car, and they left, and they camped out just about the time when harvest came. And they wiped out the harvest. Midian prevailed. They were stronger than Israel. And they destroyed their crops and everything that they had. Now Gideon, we find, is threshing wheat, not at the threshing floor, which is usually on a hill so that the wind can capture the chaff and separate the wheat as it falls to the ground. He's at a wine press. It's not a place you thresh wheat because he's hiding from the Midianites. I suspect that when the harvest came, they grabbed as much as they could and took it to the dens and the caves where they were hiding in before Midian could come in and completely wipe them out where they had nothing. They were laid low. They were impoverished. And the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I suppose Gideon didn't feel like a mighty man of valor. And if you saw him, he probably didn't look like a mighty man of valor. And as he speaks with this angel... And then ask a sign, because the angel says that the Lord is going to deliver Midian into your hands as one man. You're going to wipe them out as if it's a single man going against a nation. The angel gives the sign. Gideon is afraid, because he's seen the Lord face to face, so he says. And God speaks peace, and he then builds the altar out of that peace, and calls it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace, is He not? First consider, it's important to think of the meaning and usage of this word in the Bible. This is one of the most significant words that is shalom in the Bible. It's translated peace over 170 times, but there are many forms. There's verb forms, adjective forms, and nouns. Like shalom, shalem, shalim, and Shalam. All different verb forms that give us a more clear word picture of what this peace is that comes from Jehovah Shalom. A peace that we should be interested in, in God. So let me give you just a few verses that would speak of this Shalom in different contexts. First, Deuteronomy 27:6, when God tells Israel through Moses when they go over Jordan to Mount Ebal, they were to build an altar of memorial made of plaster. That is, they were to get stones plastered with plaster. And verse 6 says, The, the stone shall be of whole stones. The word whole there is from one of the forms, shalom. A whole stone is obviously a complete stone. It's not a partial stone. It's not part of a stone. It's not an incomplete stone. It's whole. It's complete. So this piece that God is giving Gideon is is wholeness based on that word. Secondly, we find this word used as the English word finished in 1 Kings 9.25. When Solomon built the house of the Lord in his own house, the word form of shalom is finished it. It's also used in Daniel 526, where Daniel interprets the words Mine Mine tekel yufarsin. The Lord has numbered your kingdom and finished it. It's over, it's complete. The house of Solomon and the temple are finished totally. Now I can say from experience when we built this church building, it's still not shalom. There are places in this building that I'm aware of, and probably you are too, that are not finished. It's not complete. It's not shalom. So the word picture there is totally, completely finished. In the temple, although I know there were none, there were no baseboards missing. There's no trim work that's not there. There's not a room that hasn't been painted. There's not a single facet of any square inch of the temple that's not shalom. Complete Finished. Done. Also, it's used and translated as well-being, which is a significant way this word is translated in the Bible. In Genesis 43, verse 27, when Joseph, who's the prime minister of Egypt, and his brothers come to him for corn, and they don't know who he is, he sends them back to bring back Benjamin, his brother, and when they come back, he says to them, he inquires of their welfare and says, Is your father well? Is he shalom? Now what do you think Joseph was asking concerning his father's welfare? Do you think he was just asking about one facet of his life? No, he was asking about his health, his soul, his spirit, his business, his marriage, his family, his relationships in short is father happy is he well is he shalom we find it also translated make it good in exodus 21:34 if a man digs a pit and he does not cover the pit beware men at your house if you go digging a pit and your neighbor's ox falls in the pit and dies you have to make it good with your money make it good is a form of the word shalom In other words, you have to give him every single cent of the value of the ox. Nothing lacking, nothing missing, not almost making it good, but making it totally and completely good. You have to pay the money back. Now you get the dead ox, Exodus 21 says, but the owner gets the money in full weight. You make it good. And then finally... In 1 Kings 8.61, at the dedication of the temple, when Solomon prays, he says, let the heart of the people be perfect toward the Lord. Perfect. Now, in the sense, the way we think of perfect would not mean they're without sin. but means whole, total. We could express it this way. It's to have the combination of all the parts of your heart into a pleasing and orderly whole with nothing lacking and nothing missing. To be whole is to say that everything is just as it should be. Just as it should be. Now let me illustrate all those words, as we've probably done before, in a word picture. If you just moved into a new house, or just built a new house, and someone inquired of the shalom at that house, if you had shalom, you would say, it is whole, it is well, it is finished, it is made good, it is perfect. It's just perfect. Signifying that every room in the house is just as it should be. But this word goes further. It would mean every single relationship and experience in the house is perfect. It's just as it should be. From the marriage, to the family, to the children, to the business, to the friends, to everybody that's in that home. It is shalom. That's the significance of this word in the Old Testament. And that's the word that God speaks to Gideon. Now here's the question as we move to the next point. How is that even possible, right? I'm sure I'm speaking to someone this morning who's not experiencing shalom. Maybe you're not even close to it. We live in a world that has shattered shalom by sin. Every single day we live with the constant threat of broken relationships. From friendships to church life to marriage to to family. And yet in this context of oppression and sin and evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord speaks to you today and says, Peace be unto you. So when Gideon experiences this peace, he builds the altar. He's experiencing the words spoken to him, Jehovah Shalom. So what does God say? and What does the angel do that gives Gideon this experience of of strength and the peace of God, this Shalom? That we can experience today as well. Reminds me of the song that we sometimes sing. Which says, sometimes when misgivings darken the way and face light is hard to see. I ask my dear Lord to brighten the way. He whispers sweet peace to me. Yes, He whispers to me. He whispers sweet peace to me. When I am cast down and spirit and soul, He whispers sweet peace to me. Now, I don't know if God whispered this or He shouted it. But the point is, God is whispering to us in some way, even today, sweet peace, whatever your context is, whatever broken relationship you're dealing with, whatever fear and anxiety has flooded your soul. Like Gideon, who's threshing wheat by the winepress, God says, peace, do not be afraid, you will not die. So let's consider what this angel said beginning in verse 16, "When the Lord said unto him, "Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man." And he said unto the Lord, or the angel, Gideon, "If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me." Which children doesn't mean he needs a sign that somebody's actually talking to him. He wants a sign that what the angel says is reality and will actually come." to pass and so Gideon says depart not hence I pray thee until I come unto thee and bring forth my present and set it before thee and he said I will tarry until thou come again now the word present is minkah it's used in Leviticus 2 as a meat or grain offering so Gideon is drawing language from Leviticus concerning the grain offerings and so perhaps he's thinking, knowing that this person is something unique. Is he a prophet? Is he a false prophet? Is he an angel? Just what is he? If I bring this offering and he eats it, well, that may signal that this man is not of the Lord. But if he does something else, something miraculous, then Gideon has the assurance when he brings this minkah, this offering. So he brings unleavened cakes and he brings a kid, which is also Part of the burnt sacrifice offerings of Leviticus 1. You could bring a goat. So he does so. He brings it. He presents it to the angel of the Lord. The angel tells him, put them upon this rock and pour the broth over it. And then fire raises out of the rock and consumes the sacrifice. And he departs from the presence of Gideon. The fire of the sacrifice represents three things that speaks to us this morning of God's peace to us. Three things that this fire represents. First of all, when God Himself brings fire upon a sacrifice, it is first a witness of His acceptance, not of just the sacrifice, but of the person giving the sacrifice. Leviticus 9.24, when God consumed the sacrifice with fire, it was His acceptance of the sacrifice and His approval of the priest and the people offering the sacrifice. We see that with Elijah at Mount Carmel, David at the threshing floor of Orthno, and Solomon at the dedication, God's fire comes down. This is the very sign that Gideon is after. If I have found favor and grace in your sight, What's the answer? The fire consumes the sacrifice. Gideon has found, in fact, favor. He's found grace in the sight of the Lord. Not because of who Gideon is. He's afraid. He's he's hiding. But because of who God is. God speaks peace to Gideon because of the fire that comes down. We find this also almost a parallel event in Judges chapter 13 when Manoah's wife who would be the mother of Samson, one of the next judges, who didn't do so well. The angel of the Lord peered to her and told her she would have a son. She had been barren and how she was to abstain from wine and strong drink and that this son would have the vow of a Nazarite upon him. She goes back to her husband and tells him he wasn't there. Menorah praised to God and said, Please send the angel of the Lord again so that we may hear from the angel. How are we to deal with this child? How are we to raise this child? God sends the angel, he repeats the words, and then Manoah brings a sacrifice, a present, just like Gideon. It's a kid and unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord does wondrously. Fire comes and consumes the sacrifice, but then the angel disappears into the fire and is gone. Now Manoah, like Gideon, is concerned and said, we've seen the face of the Lord, we shall die. And Manoah's wife said these words. If the Lord were pleased to kill us, then he would not have received the sacrifice at our hands. And he would not have told us these things. What did the fire witness? God is pleased with the sacrifice and the sacrificer. And God has received the sacrifice. Beloved, He has told us, hasn't He, today, through His Word. He is pleased with the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Himself. And on the basis of that sacrifice, He is pleased with you. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you've done. But because of the sacrifice represented by the fire that consumed Everything on the rock. Secondly, it's a witness to the turning away of God's wrath. And that that fits right with the sacrifice of Christ, doesn't it? God's wrath has been turned away. It was consumed, the word is used there. The word consumed means to devour or to eat up like a consuming fire. We know from Deuteronomy 4 and Exodus 20, as we mentioned last Sunday... God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. So the fire of God, or fire, represents God's jealousy over His holy name. For which Gideon has fallen short, Israel has fallen short, and you have fallen short. Now, if a fire were to consume your house as a consuming fire, you would not go back and pick up the pieces. A consuming fire leaves no hope of recovery. There is nothing. There's no chance of recovery. You don't find anything when you go back. Nothing. The point of the fire consuming the sacrifice is that there is no recovery of God's wrath. You go back to the house and there's nothing there. His wrath has been totally consumed, devoured in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now beloved, we have to understand that this peace which Christ brings us is first subjective before it's objective. Let me turn that around. It's first objective outside of us before we feel that peace, right? Think of it. Would you feel any comfort of knowing you have peace with God on the basis of the way you felt this last week? If someone says, did you feel peace this last week? Well, no, I didn't. Well, then you have no peace with God. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it through the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. That's completed. That's done. And since righteousness is over and done. We're complete. We're positionally right. The peace we have with God is connected to that righteousness. So it doesn't matter how you feel today. It doesn't matter if you feel peace in your heart tomorrow. I'm not suggesting that's an okay place to be. But you need to understand, the peace that God speaks to Gideon and says you will not die, the peace He speaks to you and says you will not die forever, is an objective peace that's outside of us. He has made peace. It's over. And my ups and downs with peace do not affect my peace with God. That is really good news, isn't it? Colossians chapter 1 says, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, having made peace through the blood of His cross. It's done. It's been made. To reconcile all things to Himself, I say, whether things in earth or things in heaven. Now that's objective peace. It's been made, it's been done, it's over. Now here comes subjective peace. In the next verse, and you who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now there comes subjective peace. Now we can experience the, the objective peace in the cross is applied to the soul, and now we're reconciled. Now we hear people that have irreconcilable differences in marriage, can't get along, there's enmity. There's quarreling. There's fighting. We know the root problem is what? A lack of love. There's just no real genuine agape love there. That's the problem with the enmity in our minds. Romans 8, 7 tells us we had no love for God. And so God takes this objective peace. He made it the cross with a transaction between Him and and, uh, the Lord. And now He brings it to our souls. And He reconciles us as friends. And friends have fellowship. Friends have peace. Friends are reconciled together. And then he speaks of this objective and subjective peace that brings us all the way to glory. What's the aim of reconciliation? What's the aim of having made peace? To present you. Through the body of his death, in his flesh, he gave his body... To bring peace. To present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. In His sight. So in, encompassed in the word shalom, this peace that's, given, that's being witnessed to Gideon through the sacrifice being consumed by fire, that God's wrath has been exhausted, is that one day perfect shalom will be ours forever. Everything will be exactly Just as it should be. Every room in the house will be peace. Every relationship in the house will be wonderful and whole and complete. And nothing, nothing will be lacking in it. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Shalom. And then the third witness of this fire that consumes the sacrifice, completely devours it, is covenant communion with God. It's really that friendship we're talking about. The peace offering of Leviticus 3 16 and Leviticus 7, whereby atonement was made through the blood of a sacrifice. The peace offering was not only eaten by the people, but the word picture in Leviticus 3.16 is that God ate the sacrifice. He told the priest, Bring the fat and the kidneys and burn them all on the altar. It is the food of the altar. A sweet savour to God. The fat belongs to God. The food of the altar. Well, who's eating the food of the altar? The fire is. Consume means to eat. God eats the food of the altar. Sinners eat the food of the altar. So in Christ Jesus, God and man are reconciled. And they're supping and having fellowship together. The fire of God that consumed The sacrifice represents the favor of God. That's what Gideon was concerned about. If I have found favor, Gideon you have, through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Is God's wrath still against me? It is not. The fire has consumed the sacrifice. There's no recovery of His wrath. You'll not find it on behalf of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then communion, just like we find in John after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In the next chapter, he is sitting at the table with Lazarus and they're eating together. Eating together. Communion with God. So this speaks not only of the meaning of shalom, but the source of shalom, right? What was the source of peace for Gideon? God spoke that peace to him. And God speaks peace to us today. For Jesus is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2. And the sacrifice gave witness to Gideon of peace. And what does he do? He builds an altar out of that peace. And he calls it Jehovah Shalom. Do you have that peace today? You may say, well, sometimes I don't experience it. Subjectively, I don't always feel it, but do you trust in the God of peace? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as both Lord of your life, you submit to Him, and Savior, He's redeemed you and given you full pardon. Then on days when you don't feel the subjective peace, you can go to His Word and God is still speaking peace to you. Because we trust in what He says. And what does He say? Peace to you, Gideon. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And we will not die forever, will we? But we'll live with God forever and ever. So there's the meaning of shalom. There's the source. God spoke this peace. But now there's the presence of shalom. Now we talk about the subjective experience. Why is it so elusive? Why is peace so often not my experience? And so God would have us to connect our subjective peace with what is objective so that when they unite, we experience more of what we just sang in the song. Not a worry, not a care of trouble. And of course, we don't think the songwriter is so naive to think that he had no external trouble or no distresses or nothing that could cause him worry. But what was he speaking about? Shalom peace. Perfect peace like a river flowing. How can we experience more of that? Well, the angel says it's the presence of the Lord. Look now at verse 12 of chapter 6. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with you, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, Why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Delivered us into his hands. The Lord's with you. Peace unto you, Gideon. Why? The Lord is with you. If we can experience in some way more of the presence of God, then our fears like Gideon's and our anxieties will be driven out again and again. That's not a one-time experience, is it? We are confronted with fears, anxieties, and oppression of every kind daily. And so the Lord speaks to you and He speaks peace through His Word and says, I am with you. Now, here's our problem like Gideon. If that's true, Lord, why has this befallen us? Do you ever say that with Gideon? Now, so an observation here and then an answer to Gideon's question. An observation and then the answer, why did those things befall Israel? The observation. Gideon is trying to find shalom based on what happens to it. Do you ever try that? You look outside of you, where there is no peace, and surely there's not, is there? You look at our culture, you look at what's happening relationally, you look at things that come into your life, and you conclude, the God of peace is really not with me because of what is befalling me. And then what happens? Fear of every kind rules The heart, because we don't understand something about the presence of God. Now, to be sure, God was not present in terms of their experience of peace, but He had not forsaken them, has He? See, the proof He had not forsaken them is the very proof that the Midianites were oppressing them because He delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. Why? That they would call upon the name of the Lord. So often the very events that rob us of our peace are the events that prove that the God of peace is with us. We expect the proof of God's presence to be that there is no distress, there's no marital problems, there's no family problems, there's no church problems. And then we become just like the world, don't we? I want you to turn to John chapter 14. When Jesus is about to leave the world through crucifixion, He tells His disciples He's leaving them with peace. And we're going to connect it with the presence of Jehovah. See? He is our peace, and His presence brings us that peace subjectively again and again and again. Right? Fourteen, John chapter 14, verse 26 But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Peace, implied, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, Jesus could be talking about that peace by and by, shalom in the future, but I don't think He is because He says right now, let this drive out your fear and drive out your anxieties. Right? Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now the first question is, how does the world give peace? It's the only way they can give it. It's the only way they can offer peace to you. By escape. By escape you have to escape the circumstances which are robbing you of peace. Or by avoidance, you've got to stay away from those things. Or by busyness, activity. If I can just engage myself in all kinds of activities, I can forget the circumstances and the lack of peace that I have. Or finally, the world gives peace through good circumstances. That's the only way they can offer you peace, right? If we could just secure the borders, if we could get rid of the COVID restrictions, if inflation would be brought low, if I had good health insurance, and if they will just preserve the social security system of my retirement, I could have a little peace. What's the problem there? That's the world speaking peace to you. It's just based on what's happened to you outside of yourself. If I can just have good circumstances, I could be at peace. No you won't. Shalom doesn't come that way. It's found in who God is and the presence of God. Now where is Jesus going when he says my peace I live with leave with you? He's going to the crucifixion. That's no peace. That's distress. That can be a cause of great fear. But he says, my peace, I leave with you. So Jesus has peace, although he's not living in an unreal world. He's experiencing the weight of what's about to happen. He's not uh, uh, being dreamy about as if nothing's about to happen. He faces what's happening. He's not avoiding what's happening. He's not escaping his circumstances. He walks right into them with peace. He walks right into bad, evil, terrible circumstances with peace. Because He's going to walk in them with the presence of His Father. You see, there's two places. First, the verse that follows. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved Me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I go to My Father. Where is the peace of Jesus that He says, it's my personal pronoun, like He says, it's my joy I give to you, my peace I give to you. It's in the presence of the Father. It's not in what's about to happen to me. It's not in the fact that they're going to rip open my back. It's not in the fact that they're going to drive nails in my hands. Those are bad circumstances. It's in Jehovah Shalom. So I think the peace of Jesus was subjective At that moment, he felt it. And so he calmly holds out his hands to his crucifiers as they chain him. And he goes right with them all the way to crucifixion. The peace the world gives us and offers us is the peace of good circumstances. It's temporal. It never lasts. The peace of Christ is eternal. And it's in bad circumstances and broken relationships. Because it's in the presence of the Father. Now look what he says when he leaves them, what he sends, or what the Father will send. Again, in verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will send you another Comforter. Now another, the Greek word heteros, is another of a completely different kind. But Jesus uses alos, another of the same exact kind. Because Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. I'm going to send God to you and he's going to be what? Present with you. My peace I leave for you. The presence of God. How will this presence manifest itself? What was the Holy Spirit going to do for the apostles? He's going to bring to remembrance every single thing I said to you and you're going to write it down in a book called the New Testament. How did they remember that? I can't even remember everything I said last week. Can you? No. We've got tapes. We've got online. We've got computers. They don't even have a tape recorder. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you with my peace and he's going to write in a book the shalom that I'm leaving. How do you experience the presence of Jehovah's Shalom? Through a book where he has spoken peace to you over and over again. He whispers sweet peace and sometimes he yells sweet peace to you. And the aim is what? So that Anxiety and fear that rob us of our peace are driven out again and again and again. As sinners, we can't just say we'll have no fear and we'll have no anxiety and worry will never touch me. We can say through the Word of God and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can have more subjective peace. Because it's not based on that person or that experience Or that good circumstance. It's based on the Father's presence. The Son's presence through the Holy Ghost. It's going to bring bring peace through the Word. And then notice, it's not just a peace from the Word. It's a peace that happens by knowing the rule of God. Over the bad circumstances. So what does Jesus say in verse 29? And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass you might believe. Hereafter I talk not much with you, for the prince of this world cometh. He hath nothing in me. All right, the prince of the world is coming to Jesus. How is he coming? In the person of Judas Iscariot. Jesus knows this. In fact, he's already predicted his crucifixion in the Gospels. He told them he's going to be beaten. They will spit on him. They will scourge him. He will die. He'll raise the third day. How did he predict that? Because he ordained it. I've told you before it come to pass. So that when it come to pass, you might believe. Jesus Christ ordained the horrible, difficult, bad circumstances of his own life. But yet he says what? I'm at peace. What is he saying to you? My peace I give unto you. Because I've predetermined every single circumstance you will ever experience. And when you live in that reality, it doesn't mean all pain goes away and all tears stop forever. What it does mean, you can have a deep-seated shalom in your heart that we fight to have again and again and again because Jesus knows He ordained it. He said in John 10, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down, that I may take it again. Friends, if you ever meet somebody on the sidewalk in Huntsville that says that to you, run from them fast. They're sick. They're demented. They're mentally deranged. Or they're God. And in this case, he's God. Because that's exactly what happened. The devil, Judas, no one took it from him. And no one will give you a single bad circumstance in your life. No one but what the Son of God ordained it for your good. Why are the Midianites there? Well, partly for reformation and restoration and calling on the name of the Lord. That's a good thing in the outcome, isn't it? So we must fight against trying to have the peace that only the world can give us in politics, in government, in secure borders. Yes, we want that, but there is no peace in that. The next day you'll have another anxiety. Right? All right? Here's the answer to that question. That's what Gideon's trying to do. Lord, you can't be with us because of all these things that are befalling us, trying to find peace in circumstances. But secondly, why is, why is it so? Why are the Midianites there? Well, because we know sin. And the angel of the Lord says it very specifically in verse... 10, when this prophet, rather, goes and tells the people why they're in bondage, he says in verse 10, And I said unto you, this is God, I am the Lord your God, fear not the gods of the Amorites. Which means, of course, they did. Now, why was there any reason to be afraid and terrified of gods of the Amorites, which are not even real? That's not what the word means, right? That's not the nuance that... The writer's using here. It means to revere, to honor, to admire. When you admire someone, you have a deep respect, respect, and an approval for what you think that person is and can do for you, right? Approval. It's kind of like presidential approval ratings. When they're very, very low, there's no admiration. Why? Because the president's not giving me any shalom. High inflation. People coming over the borders. Mandating all these restrictions. Oppression. Now when the approval ratings of a president are admired or feared. What's happening? Inflation's down. Borders are secure. Wages are up. Retirement system is good. Do you see the word picture of Shalom? Israel was attaching themselves to false gods because they think they could bring them Shalom. Prosperity. That's really the catch-all word for shalom. It's, It's a kind of whole prosperity of the whole person. Now where do we find this prosperity? In the presence of the Lord. Not our circumstances. Whether we're prospering or we're not. He is the source of our shalom. Every man did what was evil or right in his own eyes. This is the evil of the book of Judges. What does that mean? Every man determined for themselves what would be right, what would be wrong, what would be good, what would be evil, what would give me pleasure and what would not give me pleasure, thereby self deification. Every man thought he was God. That's evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, you say, well, come on, preacher, you, you, we're not like that. Only in the sense we are not serving Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech. But any time we try to attach our shalom, our peace, to something created, and we expect that created item to bring a shalom, we are idolaters. We are fearing the gods of the land. The god of money, the god of entertainment, the god of prosperity, the god of sports the God of retirement, the God of... I mean, they just go on and on and on. Now, here's the irony. As soon as we attach our peace to a something horizontal, it then robs us of peace. Why is that? Because to get peace horizontally, you've got to control the idol that's bringing you peace. You've got to tell everybody, don't touch it. You've got to secure it. And now what happens? You're full of anxiety and fear, and there's no peace Because no one will leave your shalom alone. Like marriage, right? If that's your shalom, if your spouse brings you shalom, you've got to keep that woman in in place. You've got to keep that man under the grip. He's ruining everything for peace. Peace. I thought we had every room okay in the house, but the marriage is now destroying the shalom that I want. Or the children, or the family, or the church, or the job. It goes on and on. See, our peace is so often disturbed and agitated because like Israel, we have turned to other gods to bring us what they cannot bring. And the upshot is, I don't have any peace. Right? I think this is really what James is talking about when he says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. The righteousness of right living is, is planted in peace in the heart. And then he, he tells us about that peace. He says it's the wisdom from above. It's first pure then peaceable. It's pure because it sees and is in the presence of God, Jehovah Shalom. There's fellowship with God. That's what purity's for, that we may see God and know God. And then it produces peace. And then it makes us gentle. And we're so easy to be entreated. Now, I added the word so, but I'm embellishing a little. You can talk to me. You can, you can tell me things. Because now I'm gentle and I'm easy to be entreated. I'm full of mercy and good fruits, and I'm without hypocrisy and without partiality. And the fruit of that righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. All right, now listen to James 4 1, where we try to get peace and idolatry. Where do wars and fightings come from among you? There is no peace there, right? No shalom. No shalom in your marriage. No shalom in your family. No shalom. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you just read this Bible passage, everybody gets right into shape and there's total peace. No, that's coming in the future. We're talking about your experience of shalom in your heart when everything around you is not going well, right? Jesus says, These things have I spoken that you might have peace in the world. You shall have what? Tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So he acknowledges the peace I'm talking about doesn't mean tribulation ceases and everybody gets in shape. It means this peace in your heart begins to produce right living and then it begins to sow peace in your relationships, even if people won't be at peace with you. So where do wars and fightings come from? They come from your own lust. Because you have attached your shalom to something horizontal. And it's not happening. She messes it up. He messes it up. They mess it up. And now you're fighting, warring, fearful, anxious, volatile. Why? Because this is the wisdom that's from below. Earthly, sensual, devilish, demonic. It's full of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Right? So James lays out right there in that passage, when we're warring with our words, it's because there's no peace and there's no right living because we've allowed an idol to rule the heart and we expect that idol to bring us shalom, make every room in the house right, make every relationship right. And when it doesn't, we are full of fury. Now I know that that hits every one of us, doesn't it? And God is so gracious. He just... Diagnosed the problem of every war, every quarreling in your life. That doesn't mean you're always the source of the problem. It may be the person that you're having a relationship with. But the point is when you're having war of words, when you're having quarreling, and there's no peace externally in bad circumstances, it's because there's no peace internally. And what is God saying to us? We have feared other gods. We have given the gods of the land high approval ratings and we expect those gods to deliver on shalom. And oh beloved, they can't, can they? Only God can deliver. God alone can give us peace. Are you having relational conflict regularly? you can have peace in your heart that will help you speak in that conflict. Not that everything gets right and everybody shapes up and just at your word, it's all made better. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the wicked one. He's overcome the dominion of the rule of false gods in your heart. And He's given you the presence of God Himself, the Holy Spirit, so that through God we can experience more of shalom. Subjectively, like a peace that flows in a river. Like Horatio Spafford said, it is well with my soul. Wait, wait, wait wait a minute. It's not. Everything is falling apart in your life. The business is gone. The family is gone. You're bankrupt. But he records, it is well. Now he uses just an English word there. But the, but the Hebrew word is shalom, well-being. It's well with my soul. Why? Because the Lord is there. And beloved, the Lord is here. So let us not try to find peace in our external circumstances, as if they have to be good to have peace. Let us find them in Jehovah Shalom. And next Sunday we're going to see out of this, Gideon now has the strength of peace. The strength of Jehovah Shalom and he moves out in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for